There's also like amazing studies that show, you know, even after years of abuse, as if you're in a very positive environment with the right amount of support, the right type of support, which is very important, you know, you could flourish. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I'm here today with my guest, um, Claudia, and we'll bring her in in a few minutes. Today, we are talking about a topic that um, might be a trigger for some people. We will be touching on you know, early childhood stress and adversities. We will be talking about childhood abuse. So I just wanted to give a heads up um, before we do begin this interview in case this is something that you are not comfortable listening to. Um, I think that it is a very important conversation to have. I have been having it on, on Instagram um, quite a few times because when I do bring it up, I always have a few parents that reach out and say that, you know, they they learn from it and they perhaps assess their environment a little bit more and try to understand um, the stresses that they're going through, especially now with COVID. Um, a lot of parents are going through stress and it's resulting in an environment that might not always be the best for a child, which is why we need to educate ourselves and to understand um, how early childhood stress can impact our children. And as well as parents, as you know, I always talk about taking care of yourself. And many parents have gone through some sort of stress in their in their childhood or trauma, perhaps, which is why we need to talk about this. Before we begin, I'd love to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal for sponsoring the Curious Neuron podcast. And if you're enjoying the Curious Neuron podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, we are on Spotify as well and you could leave a rating and a review we would love that and you could follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron or the curious neuron podcast as well at curious neuron podcast on Instagram and we would love to see you there because I post every single day um, about different topics related to uh, parenting and childhood and everything has to do with um, summarizing research that I find that is relevant as parents all right so let's move on to today's interview hi Claudia how are you I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. I'm I'm really happy that you're here to discuss this with us. I've read your research and I love the work that you're doing. We're going to simplify it because your research does get very uh, detailed and it's very neuroscience based. But what, what will be nice today is to take something that's really important and to break it down for parents so that they can understand it. You are a student here at McGill University. Can you give us a bit of a background um, about what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I'm a PhD student in uh, Dr. Nagid Meshwar's lab located at the Douglas Hospital. And I am very privileged to work with the Douglas Bell Canada Brain Bank. So this is actually um, a, a literal bank uh, that holds brains of humans who have passed away. And we're luckily um, able to get brains from not only neurodegenerative diseases like uh, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, but also of psychiatric sort of cases. So we get brains from schizophrenia patients, from uh, people who are depressed and die by suicide, um, as well as people with bipolar disorder. Um, and honestly, this is quite amazing as we're one of the only few in the world that have psychiatric cases. Um, so I feel very privileged to work there. I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah. So my research actually focuses on the long-term effects of child abuse. So 
we look in the postmortem human brain. So in the brain of somebody who's died already as an adult. So we're really able to tease out, you know, the long lasting effects, but negative aspect of this is that we're only getting one picture of the person's life. Mm -hmm. So we only see their brain once they have passed away. Mm -hmm. We don't get to see, you know, what's happening in their brain during the abuse, right after the abuse, or, you know, right before they pass away. Mm -hmm. It's really just a snapshot. So this is definitely something we need to keep in mind as we discuss my research uh, throughout this podcast episode. Mm -hmm. Basically, what I look at is uh, these beautiful structures in the brain that uh, are called perineuronal nets. But really, don't worry. You don't need to focus on that (laughs) word. If you just remember, they're nets. They sort of stabilize cells Mm -hmm. and their connections to other cells. So it's kind of like if you have soft Play-Doh when you're a kid. Your brain is very soft. It's very malleable. You can easily learn. Uh, the environment can easily influence what parts of your brain are growing at what time. It's it's soft, like Play-Doh. You can move with your fingers. Once you sort of age uh, into early adolescence, your brain becomes a bit harder. Uh, so we call this sort of the end of the critical period of plasticity. So really, your brain goes from being plastic, like Play-Doh, Two more solid Play-Dohs. Like if you leave Play-Doh out to dry and it gets <laughs> too hard to kind of crunch with your fingers. Mm-hmm. So basically how this happens is through these things that I study, developing the perineuronal nets. Got it. So all of this is just a long-winded way of saying I study the closure of the critical period. Mm. So I study once the brain is already the hard Play-Doh, I look and see, okay, how has it changed with a history of abuse. Got it. So one of the main questions I get is how do we know if somebody was abused or not, if we only have their brain once they've died? Well, we have professionals that work with the Douglas Bell Canada Brain Bank, and they actually go and they talk to the next of kin. So this means like the family member that's closest to the deceased. Uh, so it could be their parents, it could be their friends, it could be their, their spouse, uh, their children. And they kind of try to build a history. Mm-hmm. They also get access to medical records. Uh, they get access to uh, social work records if, you know, if this abuse was severe enough to be documented. And then they kind of categorize um, each person's brain that we receive into abused or not abused. And we really make sure to look at the most severe cases so that we can get the best picture. Because it's a very complicated topic, right? Like you can be abused, you know, for one year, you can be abused for, you know, one day a year for 10 years. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's many things that can happen. So we just try to take the most extreme cases and compare them to the least uh, extreme cases. So as control as you can get, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's no medical records saying that, you know, this person was abused. There's no social work records where like the kid was in the system or something like that. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do. I look at perineural nets in the brains of people who've died mm-hmm. by suicide with a history of child abuse. Uh, you explained that it's like the end of this plasticity era, I guess. And why are these nets so important? Is that what are they? What is their role? So they actually have multiple roles. Uh, probably the most interesting to uh, your listeners would be that they concretize connections between cells. So they act Mm -hmm. as like sort of a cement. So any, 
brain circuits that are forming or developing as the child is growing up sort of gets solidified by these nets. Mm -hmm. So animal studies and now my human study show that um, the number of these nets can be influenced by the early life situation. So whether it's an extreme abuse situation or growing up in like a, well, for animals, a loving situation where they have, you know, uh, toys available and Mm -hmm. like something for their mother to take care of them, like bedding. So like Mm -hmm. straw at the bottom of their cage, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and really we see like there's different numbers of these nets. So interestingly in my study, uh, we see that depressed suicides with a history of child abuse have an increase in these nets. So there's more of them. And it's only specifically in an area of the brain that's involved in emotional regulation. Mm. So that's something that's super, super interesting. So back to the function of these nets, we think specifically they're there to concretize neuronal connections, so cellular connections in the brain. And in our case, when we're looking at the child abuse, we think that the excess of these nets so the the increased number of these nets is solidifying not only you know good neuronal circuitry so good pathways in the brain but also these maladaptive sort of coping mechanism uh, circuitry when you're undergoing abuse you know you may not have the best emotional regulation and then those patterns of your brain circuitry are sort of being propelled into adulthood by the formation of these nets. Got it. Because I think maybe a parent listening might be confused with that, right? So if we have more nets and we're concretizing, they might see that we, you know, as a positive thing. But what they're concretizing and what they're solidifying are maladaptive or, I guess, like, not exactly the right way to regulate emotions is what you're saying. Exactly. Got so, um, again, we're looking at a snapshot of a human brain mm-hmm. uh, from somebody who's already passed away. Yeah. So we can't draw any, you know, it's it's called correlation. It, it's mm-hmm. not causation. So exactly. we think this is what's happening. Yeah. It makes sense based on animal studies. And that's, that's what we're learning. Mm-hmm. How about we bring it back a little bit to have some definitions in terms of like what you're looking at. So I know that you're looking at a very specific cohort or group of people. Um, have there been any studies that look at this in, um, you know, various early childhood stressors or other kinds of adverse events? So in humans, the plain answer is no. So because of the brain bank, Mm -hmm. having access to these well-characterized brains, Mm -hmm. we are the first ones to look at child abuse Mm -hmm. in the topic of perineuronal nets in humans. But interestingly, there are definite, there's, I would say, I think six studies now in animals. Um, don't quote me if I'm, if it's seven <laughs> <laughs> by the time this podcast is out, because it's a hot topic. Um, but yeah, there's, there's very few studies mm. looking at animal work. So either in rats or in mice mm-hmm. where they, you know, put the mice in what's called early life stress situations. And then they look at the perineuronal nets. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Yes, you can see, you can model different types of abuse in animals, but it will never be the same as a human experience. Just as my experience growing up is not even the same as my sister's experience growing Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Every single human has a different experience Mm -hmm. 
and and sort of reacts differently to any experience that they're involved in. Yeah. So even if like two kids are in the same abusive household, for example, it does not mean that they're both going to you know, develop the same way and react the same way. Mm-hmm. Why? We still don't know. We're still mm-hmm. trying to figure that out. Yeah. But to circle back, yes, in animal studies, we can model different types of sort of early life stress. The main ones are called limited bedding. So this is literally where we give not enough supplies to the mother so that it cannot take care of the pup, the -hmm. baby mouse or rat. Mm -hmm. And this is more of a neglect sort of modeling. And then you can also um, have different situations where you have limited bedding as well as, um, you know, an aggressive mother. So you can like sort of breed animals so that they're aggressive or not. And that's sort of more like of a severe abuse phenotype mm-hmm. um, rather than just a neglect phenotype. Got it. So phenotype uh, just means sort of what we see, yeah. like the, the the patterns coming out of the, the parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the third model that's most often seen is like you put multiple things together. So you'll separate the mother from the pup for a few hours a day. So that it models neglect. Mm-hmm. And then also when you put them back together, you know, it's not bonding as it should if they were in a cage together. So yeah, there's different models uh, that we see mm-hmm. in animal studies that hopefully one day we can tease out in humans, but it's very, very difficult because everyone has different experiences. I, I'm curious to understand a little bit more about um, the parts of the brain that are impacted by these early childhood stresses or, or abuse. Um, because I know that I, I, if anybody's um, familiar with, you know, Bruce Perry, Dr. Bruce Perry's work, um, there's a book called What Happened to You. I've spoken about it on Instagram as well. But, you know, we they, they talk about certain parts of the brain that are impacted by, um, you know, adverse childhood events or, or early childhood stress. Um, and it's the, the emotions part of the brain and uh, the stress parts of the brain are, are implicated. And so you're seeing that as well in postmortem, right? And in, in, so w- what is the research around that? Maybe... I said um, adverse childhood events. Maybe we can define what that is for everybody and then talk a little bit about how that impacts the brain in, in general, like not looking just at the cells and molecularly, but in general, the parts of the brain that are impacted. Yeah, for sure. So um, generally to define adverse childhood experiences. So this specific sort of coined term, ACE, adverse childhood experience, comes from a survey that came out uh, years ago. And basically, in this survey, they ask um, about your first 18 years of life. So they ask uh, multiple sort of questions that sort of tease out what kind of abuse you were subjected to. Was it neglect? Was it physical abuse? Was it emotional abuse? Um, Did you see somebody get abused versus yourself getting abused? Mm -hmm. Uh, Were your parents, you know, drug addicts or alcoholics? So it's really asking if you, did you grow up in a home that exhibited these sort of abusive characteristics Mm -hmm. or um, difficult situations? And I have, just to add to that as well, um, I think uh, I was looking at one of the the studies and it talks about 
um, divorce as well, right? So an mm-hmm. ACE could be divorce. It doesn't have to be like an extreme case. And um, another one is anything physical. So if a parent in the household would often push you or grab you or slap you, um, throw something at you or often hit you. Um, and, and that's something parents talk about. Very, There's a culture aspect to it. There's, you know, a generational part of that. But these are all things that fall within the ACE that you're talking about, just so that parents have a, a picture of the, everything on there. I think yeah, absolutely. It. Oh, Marion. <laughs> I, I, I was yeah. just thinking there are uh, some of the other things that pop pop to, or come into mind are like sleep and diet and any kind of extreme conditions. Would is that um, is that categorized as adverse, or do you know? I mean, it's kind of a technical thing, but it, I just. Yeah, so not in this specific questionnaire, um, but I'm sure new questionnaires, yes, because we now know that you know, these are definitely things that influence your early life. Um, but this specific questionnaire that we're talking about, um, no, it's, it's very much abuse, physical, um, yeah, more extreme, but also light situations, but yeah, not diet or uh, exercise. Yeah. So yeah. Um, now regarding these ACE studies, um, so anybody who's experienced that there's a score given to, to the person and then, these people, what are we seeing if, if they've experienced one of these in their childhood? What are the impacts of it? Yeah, so uh, so the questionnaire does score you. And I can't remember the cutoff if it's four or six. Yeah, I'm six. not sure. I could look it up and, and yeah. put a... Yeah, I think back. it's six. But mm. So yes, this questionnaire definitely um, gives you sort of a score on your first 18 years of life. And then these researchers tried to sort of Um, look later in life and see what's correlated. So if you have a high ACE, so a high number of adverse childhood events, do you have worse outcomes or are you fine? Do you have better outcomes? Like what's the situation? Mm. So uh, if I remember correctly, they definitely find a high correlation of uh, negative outcomes with higher ACE scores. They did provide a cutoff number, um, but it's important to note that this cutoff number does not necessarily mean you're going to have negative outcomes. It's just you're more likely to experience negative outcomes if you do not have the adequate support system Mm -hmm. after experiencing this many adverse childhood events. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, definitely, like, I think the most important thing to remember from these studies is that, yes, having an adverse, um, adverse sort of events filled childhood does unfortunately have long lasting effects later in life. Um, But, you know, we have research coming out every day and it does not necessarily mean that you will have a negative life after these, you know, negative events early in life. Yeah. There's also amazing studies. No, go ahead. (laughs) There's also like amazing studies that show, you know, even after years of abuse, as if you're in a very positive environment with the right amount of support the right type of support, which is very important, you know, you could flourish, mm. you know, maybe you're not going to become a, you know, a professor and open up your own lab, but that does not mean you can't be happy. It does not mean you can't go to school. It does not mean you can't get a job. It does not mean you can't be, get a white collar job. You know, like mm. it does not necessarily limit you in the future, mm. but I think the important part is that you need the right kind of support. Mm. And unfortunately it's not just, you know, a two, topic list that you get just 
could just check off and say, okay, I tried this, tried this. Now I'm good. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unfortunately a, a long, a long-term sort of learning experience for yourself, for your family, for whoever you sort of encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, it's quite sad, but like adverse childhood experiences are quite common. Just in Canada, the 2015 rates was one in three children experienced maltreatment before the age of 15, wow. you know, so it's very common. So mm. not necessarily severe abuse is common, but some sort of maltreatment, you know, is bound sort of to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just the important thing is to know is that it's not doomed forever. Yeah. But it's so important to mention that I'm, I'm thinking of the parents that are listening. There are two things that that have come up with the parents that I've spoken with. One is parents who have, you know, undergone some sort of um, stress in early life or trauma in early life. And then the second one are parents who are questioning, you know, their child's environment and whether or not that might cause trauma or stress. You know, parents who are in domestic abuse situations right now or, um, uh, you know, uh, with different members coming in and out of the house and perhaps, you know, the child safety is at risk or parents who adopted children as well. So there's the parent themselves um, who are questioning what is what does the future look like for me? Because they might be aware that they're struggling with stress. They might be aware that they're struggling with their mental health um, or or their emotion regulation, right? So we talk a lot about that. Um, what are some of the studies that you've seen that look at whether it's abuse or childhood trauma? And, and we spoke. You spoke a little bit now in in, in terms of the like there, there's a a long path ahead. But what can a parent do um, if they have experienced something? So I think one of the recurring topics that I see is that parents and people who've experienced abuse are more likely to flourish and get past these adverse events if they have a support system, if they seek support. So, um, you know, very common theme of parents in abusive, you know, relationships or in an abusive household, or as you said, like just with people in and out of the house where you can't really control, you know, what's happening at all moments. Um, I think it's very common to feel alone um, Mm -hmm. and feel as if you don't have a support system, Um, especially, you know, with the rise of single parenting homes um, just Mm -hmm. in like the past, you know, 10 years, 20 years. I think it's important to reach into the community. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, it does fall on a person to look for resources you know, it would be, what would be amazing is if we lived in this, you know, uh, socialist society where people knock on your door and say, hey, how can I help you today? Mm. You know, what can I do for you today? Unfortunately, you know, it's not the world we live in, um, but there's so many community programs available, um, usually at no or low cost, specifically for these adverse sort of living situations, because they they know it's hard to get out of these situations or it's hard to maintain a balance while in these situations. Um, So, you know, the only advice I could really give is to look for help. And I know that's really, really hard. And I, I do like, you know, I've gone through depressions myself and like, I know it's the last thing you want to do is ask for help, but Mm -hmm. sometimes like you just kind of kind of, you know, just do it as Nike says, and like, ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. You know, I'm, sh- there's usually some kid who's looking for a cheap babysitting, 
you know, job, if, if you need some time for yourself, um, and you're, you know, and you can't take care of your child at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, of course this is coming from, I don't have kids. I'm, I'm 25. (laughs) So, you know, maybe I have it all wrong, but you know, (laughs) what I'm hoping for myself in the future is that I will be able to find the support, um, from the community. If, you know, I don't have a partner to help me raise my kids Mm -hmm. or, you know, Mm -hmm. if I end up in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Um, are you offering to is, come and babysit our children <laughs> we're both honestly, in Montreal we both have three kids <laughs> honestly I love babysitting so you know I could if you allow me to do some uh, science with them yeah. are, we, are we are we combining kids yeah. Marion? <laughs> <Putting awesome>. yeah <laughs> you could start a little um, research I, lab <laughs> yeah exactly. I would love that I would love that I'm, I'm, I also think that I, I'd like to put myself in the mindset of somebody who, um, might come from, uh, you know, traumatic childhood or has, has been abused. There might be these barriers to opening up and these barriers to allowing somebody in or to allowing your children to be out there too. Right. So it's so hard to, to be, to understand like what these people are going through and, and what they can possibly do too sometimes. So, I, I I don't know. I, I know that we don't have specific advice for them, but in, in terms of the research, you know, maybe somebody um, hasn't made the link yet to how their parenting and, and how their stress levels are. Can we talk a little bit about the stress system and how abuse can have an impact on that? And you touched on emotions, but maybe understanding a little bit more on how it could impact emotions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually work from the Douglas, um, specifically the Michael Meany lab, um, in the past years, you know, uh, it's, it's a mouse model of maternal separation. So, which is kind of like you take the pup away from the mother, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a seminal study, which basically means like the most important study that ever came out ever and is taught in every class (laughs) ever, um, about the stress system and the sort of abuse is that, yeah, we, we see these um, changes in the brain at the molecular level. So a different number of certain kinds of receptors uh, changes after maternal mm-hmm. separation. And you can even see that like, you know, a mother who is maternally separated from their mother, so like second generation, also changes the way they mother to their children. Mm-hmm. So if a mother has this like early life stress pattern, Again, this is in animals. Yeah. They change the way they parent towards their pup. So, mm-hmm. like just these studies really show you that, like, yeah, that there is intergenerational trauma, first of all. Second yeah. of all, it has consequences on the brain. And specifically, this was about the stress system, which is why I brought it up. Um, yeah. the specific molecule I was talking about was a glucocorticoid receptor, which basically is mm-hmm. a receptor that's involved in the stress system. Um, and you know, we see these changes. But again, we have to remember, we put these mice in these paradigms, we put them in these situations, and we do not provide them support (laughs) afterwards, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just studied for that specific situation. It does not model the way that real human life works. You know, Mm -hmm. we hope that there is support after these traumatic events, whether it be through friends, through colleagues, through your support system, through the government, uh, like through government Mm -hmm. aid or through the, the police system, or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, all of these different community sort of organizations that can maybe provide support after these events. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So is that to say that we can, you know, for example, change the level of glucocorticoid receptor, you know, after our mothers were, you know, experienced early life stress? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't really seen studies that, you know, say, okay, here we put them in a good environment and now fix their brain because that's, unfortunately, that's not where the research is right now. I'm sure it exists yeah. somewhere. Just, I have mm-hmm. personally not, you know, followed up on that. Um, but I know specifically in perineuronal net research, we do see that if you abuse an animal and then put them in a enriched environment, as we call it. So where they have everything they need, where they have like sort of a, a caring sort of entourage, I mean, as caring as you can get in, in like mm-hmm. a, you know, mouse work. Um, mm-hmm. But you do see like the change in these perineuronal nets um, in the opposite direction as you see when there's the abuse. So these things that are involved in neuroplasticity. So what we were talking about before the critical period of plasticity, where your brain's actually malleable, you know, just because we say that this critical period closes, doesn't mean that you can't change anything about your brain. Like you're still able to learn a language when you're 40 years old. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, a little harder. Uh, You may have to do more (laughs) lessons or, you know, go into more intensive courses, but it's still possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I, I would love to see animal research. Like I am going to Google it like right after this. Like <laughs> I, I would love to see research that shows like, mm-hmm. you know, specifically a change in brain sort of dynamics after a system of support is put into place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You've mentioned a few times, you know, the in, in these um, animal models where like the nest, like taking care of the bedding or the, the mom being more neglectful, you know, I, I think back to today's parent and how much stress and, you know, thought that we put into so many little details. But then when you look at the early environment, the importance of just, uh, you know, a consistent environment, a loving environment where attachment is built, um, where hopefully, you know, many moms or parents, you know, can offer this kind of environment. I know that it's not possible in all families and that there are situations and, but it comes down to these basics that are so important for the early, the child, the brain, the early brain, right? In the development, what can we offer parents as kind of a, to to lift that weight off their shoulders about everything else that society and, and, you know, commercialism has put onto like, in, in their head of like that thing we need every, all these little things like in the end the environment is important but it's not about like having every single toy possible it's that connection and that interaction right with their caregiver absolutely you know having this as you said constant sort of figure in your life or figures you know mm-hmm. if it's if it's the mother plus the grandmother you know who yeah. the who the baby interacts with you know on a daily basis um, or the, uh, on a weekly basis, let's say mm-hmm. for the grandmother and like daily for the mother, um, you know, these are what's important mm-hmm. having, you know, being attentive and responsive to your child. I would say from the research that I've seen yeah. seems to be one of the most important things, mm-hmm. you know, having, you know, the most expensive toy on the market, like I really don't think has that big of an influence, um, on the way that your child's brain is going to develop. If you 
like coo and ah, it's your baby. It's already enough stimulation to get their, you know, uh, sensory system going in their brain. And like the, the cortical connections are starting mm-hmm. to grow just from you going, Oh, hello. How are you? Like, <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. Um, you know, from Dr. Perry's research yeah. again, like physical touch, like cuddling your baby, like all of these things help the brain develop without you having to buy like a $30,000, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, toy car for the kid yeah. to drive around in. <laughs> like I've seen some of these things on TikTok and I'm like, what is wild. happening here? It's wild. You know? Yeah. You know, you, you spoke about sensory experience mm-hmm. and, and he talks about this bottom up approach. Um, yeah. When the brain is developing, we often hear experts as well uh, talk about like sensory experience and we need, they, we need to do that with babies. But what's the story behind that? What is the bottom up approach and what is the role in sensation as the baby's brain is developing? So um, again, not my area of like expertise, but like from what I do know, what I have learned in class. um, Yeah. So kind of your brainstem, which is what we call the bottom um, is the more like animalistic part of our, you know, um, nervous system that we don't really control. Like it controls us. Um, so the brainstem kind of develops first. This is an area that, you know, is sort of involved in emotional regulation, but mostly involved in, you know, keeping your heart beating, keeping your lungs uh, pumping air in and out of your body, uh, keeping you awake or making you sleep, like things like that, mm-hmm. um, where you don't really have a choice in the matter. It just kind of <laughs> happens. Um, that kind of develops first. And then, you know, I, I read this thing yesterday that when a baby is born, they have 25% of the volume of their brain. So the size of their brain as an adult, you have 25% of that, like the moment you're born. And at eight years old, it's already at 85% volume. So like just in that first eight years of life, like your brain has, is expanding exponentially, like just Mm. massively. So, you know, any input you're giving the child, so whether it be sound, uh, you know, it's going to help the auditory system develop. Uh, If it's, you know, seeing different shapes, uh, different colors, um, different people, recognizing faces, things like this. All of these things develop gradually, um, quite quickly, though, if you think about it in terms of like the length of a lifetime. Um, but but gradually, like it's it's not once they're born, they have this, you know, you need to sort of feed it. You like it's called lo- use it or lose it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't hear anything, you know, for the first eight years of your life, like maybe you'll never hear anything later on because Mm. you, your brain has never experienced this. Your brain doesn't know what cells need to communicate to get this sound into, you know, a thought or Mm. into like an understanding. So the prefrontal cortex, which we would call the top is the last thing to develop. So, you know, some studies show that, you know, it's fully developed around 25 years old. Uh, Newer studies are showing maybe 29 to 30 years old. Um, that's when it kind of fully develops and is no longer really influenced by the outside world. Mm -hmm. That's why they say like, you know, don't do drugs when you're a teenager. It's (laughs) literally because it can mess up the way that your brain develops. Mm. Um, so yeah, what's the necessary things, uh, just from Dr. Perry's research, Mm -hmm. I know it's like, you know, a physical touch can tell you not only that you're safe, um, but also it's literally teaching your sensory system, what a touch feels like. You know, what does a finger touching your arm feel like? What does a, you know, a kiss on your cheek feel like? What does a rub mm-hmm. on your back feel like? So all mm-hmm. of these things we need to learn to discriminate. It's not just, we don't just know this. Mm-hmm. We only learn it through experience. Um, so yeah, that's. Uh, yeah. 
it's so fascinating to hear like how every little thing that we're doing with the baby is really impacting what's going on. And we know it, we, we, we know it, mm-hmm. but we don't really take the time to realize like, you know, when you just grab your baby and you hold it or you're rocking your baby, you're helping their brain develop. We don't have to worry about the bigger things at that age, you know, of like, like you said, like which toy and is it a black and white contrast? Did I get the right one? Or just it's, it's those experiences, the interactions with their caregiver that has such a huge impact. I sort of like to think of it um, in a way it's like, you know, if we think of cavemen, you know, mm. they did not have Fisher Price toys. <laughs> they they did, <laughs> no, not they did not have Toys R Us, you know, and look where we are today, you know, <laughs> like we're here, like evolution has happened. Um, you know, we're not, yeah, it's the, it's, that's, you know, I, I think as long as you try your best, um, and seek support. Like I, I, you know, there's really a lot of studies that show like, you know, single parent homes have more barriers to face than like even a single parent home, but who has like a grandmother next door or like, you know, at least, you know, two hours away versus like, you know, in Europe compared to Montreal, Mm -hmm. you know, like just these little hubs or little communities, um, that you can get involved in, whether it's like religious or a yoga practice mm-hmm. where you meet a bunch of people. And like you, as you guys were talking about before, like send your kids together to a play date, for mm-hmm. example, right? Like where mm-hmm. one parent takes on a role at a time. Um, that's how, that's how humans evolved. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we grew up in, in communities. It yeah. wasn't, you know, one man for themselves. It was all or, or no one. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Perry talks about that, um, yeah, that sort of research and the the, the importance of community, um, because, like you said, it, it that's what we see, you know, in, in in some cultures too, like the importance of the community. And now I think what parents are worried about is that lack of community that we've had, obviously because of the pandemic, um, and and that a lot of parents and and new moms have had a lack of support, um, mm-hmm. and it's hard to. To say, like, I I know that there are some online, you know, forums, but it's so hard. You sometimes we need that interaction and that connection with others um, to to thrive too. As as a new parent, yeah. it's so hard. Abs- yeah. yeah. So, you know, specifically in this pandemic, you know, I'm I'm sure we're going to see a lot of research coming out in the next five years, um, mm-hmm. just about one the effects of the pandemic, yeah. um, and two just the effects of the lack of socializing during the yeah. pandemic because I think yeah. that's a big big thing that you know the governments were not thinking about, um, you know. Anyways, that's a whole other that's a whole <laughs> other story. If you ever heard of the Romanian orphanages from the 1980s, yeah. where literally you know, hundreds of thousands of babies uh, from zero to three years old uh, were left in these orphanages where they had severe neglect. It's one of the most well-documented severe neglect situations that we, mm-hmm. you know, can can have research on. And they did studies now, like 20 years later, that you can see if the children were put into an environment where they had somebody to take care of them. They had this positive sort of surrounding where what we would call an enriched environment. Mm. They have much better outcomes than the children that were left in the system and put from, you know, foster home to foster home to foster home and, or were just kind of left, just literally dropped by the system because there was just too many, you know, kids to take care of. Mm. They actually, they can see like a percentage of um, change and difference, like in, in betterness kind of in an enriched environment. 
Mm. So again, I, I think the really important thing to to remember is like, okay, you had two years where you were not able to socialize, not able to bring your kid to their grandparents, to their aunts, to their uncles. Okay. How are you going to fix it? You know, yep. make t- family mm-hmm. time next year, as soon as mm-hmm. we're allowed, you know, I'm sure for some, for some people, you know, the, the pandemic was a, a situation of severe neglect. So how do we mediate that? How do we fix yep. that in the future is seek support. Yeah. Like join a community group. If you don't like that one, try another one. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I really think the importance like thing to remember is like it's not over just because two years was was bad, was rough, there was neglect. No, it's it's you you have multiple years left mm-hmm. of development. You know, as I said, the prefrontal cortex, you know, they think it's still 30 years old, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not developed. So there's a lot of of room for it improvement or for sort of backtracking and trying to fix kind of what happened. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I had spoken with Dr. Susan King from um, McGill and she had studied the um, the ice storm that we had here in Montreal uh, a few years back now. Um, and there was an impact on the child's development um, because of the severe stress that some moms went through during pregnancy. But her take-home message from our conversation was the same as what you just said, where, yes, you know, you might have gone through severe stress during pregnancy or right after you delivered, but there's a way to enrich the environment and look for support and to create an environment that will help move things along when it comes to your child's development. It's not like nothing can ever be fixed. You just have to be aware of it. And and like you said, go full force into creating that sort of environment that will help them thrive uh, rather than just thinking that there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, so, I, I'm I think- so glad you brought that that study up the orphanage because I think that's such a good example of how there can be this severe neglect and we can recover and like you said we're going to see studies coming out and there some of them are going to be scary <laughs> we're going to say like oh my goodness they're already they're seeing cognitive di- differences between children that are born uh, during the pandemic there's a new study that just came out but really I think people and parents have to to, to stay positive and not worry that, oh, my baby was born during the pandemic. They are more likely to have, um, you know, motor deficits or language deficits or things like that, but rather take that and say, okay, maybe the language, maybe they're, they're missing. I think they, they just changed the CDC, uh, the number of words you're supposed to have. By yes. the age. Yeah. Did you, I think they, you posted they decreased it. it. They decreased it. And and maybe that is for, for parents uh, going through this time. Maybe they're going to see that they have a few, they're not speaking as many words mm. um, as a, a baby did two years ago. Yeah. But the important thing is, is the brain of these children is so plastic. And as Claudia so clearly um, told us today, it's plastic up until the age of like really plastic up until the age of 25, especially um, language up until I would say six or seven. It's like we have lots and lots of opportunities to to help our children be exposed to more to to more words, more languages, more people. We have a really interesting podcast um, where we talk about shyness and social skills. I'm, I know parents who are, are are worried now that their kids are not as social as they w- they would have been had they been exposed to more social groups, but it doesn't mean that they're doomed and that it's going to, you know, scar them for for life. We've got it. We have to think of this as an opportunity now to to go to move slowly, but their their brain is still able to adapt and and we're able to support them in the next few years. 
Another thing to remember is that, you know, you're not alone in this situation. You know, it, it's a pandemic. It's worldwide, first of all. Yeah. So it's it's not just your kid. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's everyone's kid. The other important thing I think we should also mention is the privilege we have living in Canada, living in the United States. Our poorest people are still more fortunate than, you know, the the medium, you know, uh, the middle class in some mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. So, again, like, I, I think we need to check ourselves and say, like, okay, compared to, you know, the whole entire planet, you know, I had a home mm-hmm. or maybe I didn't. Maybe I had a tent. You know, but m- did I have food? Like, you know, there's a lot of things we can sort of check ourselves. I know you're not supposed to compare yourself, but sometimes it, it does help you realize how fortunate you are and how like you really will be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of some parents who have spoken or reached out to me and really um, I, I, in the past year, there are some emails I received that were really just dis- difficult to read and to realize that there are some situations in homes that are are not easy right now. Um, And I'm thinking about these parents who are stressed, who might be drinking more, who might be going towards um, substance substance abuse to ease the stress and the difficulty that they're experiencing right now. There are children in this environment. And maybe to sort of close off our conversation, I know that we've spoken about childhood abuse and we've spoken about you know the fact that the brain is plastic so i'm i'm i really wanted to make sure that we talked about that but now i i think i also want to shed light on the consequences because you know some parents might think well my my baby's only two months old you know and and the environment right now there's a lot of physical abuse and and violence within the home but they're so small and they don't understand what's going on, so maybe they'll be okay. And I know I've read some research on that where it doesn't matter how young they are, right? When we talk about early childhood stress, they are responding to the environment. And have you? can you talk to towards that research or to, like that sort of topic? I feel like not directly. Um, I, I think it was mentioned by Bruce Perry, but that's why I wanted to bring it up as well. I, I think there is a part in his book where he, he talks about an environment with like extreme violence or aggressiveness where uh, the stress response of the child or the baby will still respond to it. So even if they don't understand the words or it's that sensory aspect, right. That's developing from Mm -hmm. what I understood. Um, And and it still creates a hypersensitive stress response in those children. Yeah. So I think it's definitely important to, you know, still remember that yes, they're going to be, probably okay in the long run, but, you know, in some cases it's not the case and it's going to be a lifelong, you know, sort of battle to, to learn how to, you know, be out of these, um, you know, negative situations because it's easy to fall into patterns mm-hmm. um, because that's how our brain works. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, see, it, it learns patterns and, and it repeats patterns. And um, yeah. So yes, maybe your baby is only two months, but you have a stress response. You then go pick up your baby and your baby can sense the stress response. You know, like there's mm-hmm. physiological changes in your body. You know, you're tense or you you have sweaty palms or your heart rate is elevated. Like if you hold your baby to your chest, they can they can feel this. Mm-hmm. They 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 are sponges. Um, like their brain is literally a sponge. <laughs> they, they want to sop up as much information as mm-hmm. they can get. Um, 
so yeah, like I think it's very important to to remember that even though you think they're not conscious, like they are, like their brain is developing, it is picking up patterns in the environment. And if the environment, you know, is telling it to be aggressive um, and to, you know, have to, you know, put up walls sort of, um, you know, unconsciously, of course, but, you know, it is like the brain is picking this stuff up. Uh, we are sentient beings. We are connected human beings. So they feel what, you know, the parents are feeling. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say it translates one-to-one, you know, but definitely they're they're picking up some of it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's very important to, you know, try to regulate yourself so that you can regulate your child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've touched upon it on a few yeah. podcasts. Um, you know, it's really important to try and keep regulated for your child. Uh, so whether that means like, you know, you need to go to therapy or you mm-hmm. need to, um, you know, go to a rehab center or something for a little while to better your child's future, mm-hmm. you know, might be something to consider. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to ask the questions that I received from some people from in the audience. Um, one question was, if years of therapy hasn't helped me with my childhood trauma, am I doomed to trauma patterns? Now that we've had our conversation, I think you touched upon that in terms of the environment, but perhaps they've tried that and they feel there's nothing left as well. Just for example, I thought I knew everything there was to know about, um, you know, uh, early life stress and like ways to fix it. So I thought, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Perfect. Okay. uh, Mindfulness-based stress reduction. Okay. Like, you know, all of these different, you know, textbook styles of, of sort of repatterning how the brain works. Uh, changing the way the connections in the brain work. And then literally last year, uh, I think Marion actually uh, like suggested um, Dr. Perry's first book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Yeah. And I read that and I, I, I learned about Dr. Perry and his research um, on the neurosequential mm. sort of model that he developed. And I was just, I'm literally still in awe. Like, I want to get this man like to Montreal to talk at the Douglas Hospital specifically. Like, I want him to teach in like McGill Med School. Like, I want, Mm. I want his model to be disseminated. It seems like it's sort of disseminated in uh, the US, but Canada is pretty limited still. Mm. Um, It's a pretty new model from like, I want to say 20 like 16 he, around he yeah. started disseminating it to like the actual like to the public mm. um yeah so like the, just like research is happening mm. unfortunately it takes a while to go from bench side to bedside yeah. uh, is what we say like once we know something in research does not necessarily mean we can apply it right away mm-hmm. in practice um but you know if that can give somebody hope that like you know the 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 road is not over yet you know we're still learning more about about childhood trauma because it was such it was a topic that nobody even considered you know for the longest time exactly and and i think that's his biggest um the thing that he's trying to not fight against but that he's trying to put bring awareness to is the fact that these like care it's not trauma-informed or you know educators are not trauma-informed and all of this this entire system that we have it needs to have more you know, trauma-informed, like a foundation to that. Because once you understand how trauma impacts brain development and how that leads into adulthood, then you could treat and help the person heal better, right? That's that's his his point, I think. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm. And and the first step to that is is realizing, okay, this stuff happens. Childhood adverse events happen. Mm. Will they ever stop? I I don't think so. Mm. We are human, you know. People have tempers, people have reactions, you know, life is hard. Mm. Life is really hard. Will these events ever stop occurring? I don't think so. Mm. So we need to figure out what to do when they do happen. And we're getting closer and closer every day. We still have, I think, light years to go, unfortunately, because the human experience is so diverse. Mm. And, you know, depending on what postal code you have or, or, you know, what building you live in, like your situations are completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, again, I, I think you know, it may feel like the road is, is, is at, at the end, but just for example, if you haven't heard of the neurosequential model, like type it into Google, it looks literally incredible. I'm doing Mm -hmm. more and more research on it every day. Um, I'm getting more and more interested in it Mm -hmm. and just, it really, it looks like, so for anyone who doesn't, (laughs) yeah. So anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's just, they're trying to take um, a neuroscience look at the responses to these uh, childhood adverse events Mm. and trying to understand like developmentally, where is the brain at now? So even if you have a 12 year old, if they're Mm non-communicative, if they, you know, can't regulate their emotions, if they, you know, can't read, can't write, can't speak, you know, maybe their brain is actually, you know, at a four-year-old's level or a Mm three-year-old level because of, you know, neglect or something like Mm -hmm. that. So it really takes a look at where the brain is and how can we bring it to where it is supposed to be mm-hmm. um, using different techniques. You know, I, I think of conversations that I have with friends sometimes and sometimes once in a while, there's like an adult within the working space or, you know, their environment that stands out in terms of being triggered so easily and very emotional and can't manage their emotions and they're, they're, they're criticized and they're told certain things. And then I think back to, a toddler who's struggling with emotions, who's having outbursts, who's not managing their emotions, who's triggered by everything. And, you know, it's not to say that the the brain is at that age. However, when it comes to emotion regulation skills, perhaps that person hasn't made the link to their childhood, or perhaps we're not being mindful enough when there's somebody like that in our environment that their emotion regulation part of the brain hasn't you know, had the opportunity to develop and, and learn certain skills and get those tools that they need. And that's why I really think that as parents, we also need to be trauma-informed for ourselves so that we understand ourselves. And then we'll understand, well, that makes a lot of sense because as soon as my child does something, I'm snapping for absolutely no reason. It could be stress, obviously, it could be fatigue. But if it's something that we've worked on and nothing's changing, we need to think about our past a little bit and and, and realize that some things could impact that and that will impact our relationships with our children, with our spouse, with our colleagues. I definitely think it's it's a good, very good comparison of this emotionally stunted adult <laughs> to an emotionally yeah. <laughs> not developed right? child. Yeah, I've had three toddlers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, but that's what I think of, and yeah. and that's why it you made me think of that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, like the first thing to do is like check yourself, see like, okay, am I reacting like an adult? Am I? you know, reacting as a healthy adult, that's another thing, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't necessarily mean just because your brain is grown doesn't mean it it grew the right way, (laughs) you know, like emotional uh, response also can change over time, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe you never got triggered before, but because something has happened, it triggers like your old sort of, 
you know, stunted brain and, and mm-hmm. yeah. So you, you revert back to, you know, your old self yeah. even after these, you know, for example, years of therapy or something. Mm-hmm. So that just really goes to show how plastic the brain is mm-hmm. um, and how we can, we can modify it. Mm-hmm. And like you said, exactly. It's not that if you notice this in yourself after listening today, it's, you're not doomed. Like this person said, you, mm-hmm. you, there are ways that you could try to work through it. Um, another person brought up ACE scores very specifically and said that this, they have an ACE score um, that is greater than four, you know, will they ever be able to recover and have similar outcomes as somebody who doesn't have um a high score. Yeah. So um, if I remember correctly, the ACE um, sort of score system goes up to 13. Um, so four out of 13, I don't think it's um, like, I, I think the cutoff is six um, for, for being severe. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, somebody maybe with one ACE will have a worse outcome with somebody with four ACEs. Exactly. Um, mm. I don't think it's that perfect of a correlation. Um, you know, there's some drawbacks to the, uh, questionnaire in itself, just like, um, you know, it's retrospective. First of all, it's asking you after you're 18 years old, what happened before you were 18 years old. So, you know, first of all, your memories are emotionally driven. So you could remember things differently. Um, not necessarily that you're remembering them wrong, but just the way you look at them could be different. You know, there's so Mm -hmm. many factors, maybe the question you know, doesn't perfectly explain your situation, but like you kind of said mm-hmm. yes, or like put a high score on that one because it's most similar to your situation. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. just a questionnaire. Um, so no, I, I, I don't think, um, I don't think you're doomed. I don't think there'll be, you know, only terrible outcomes in the future. Um, because, you know, if you, if the parent, if this is a parent is asking that question, you know, they're already taking a step. They already notice, you know, there's something that needs to be done here or something that needs to be taken care of. So mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, you have some hope if if you're already asking this question um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the that first steps have been exactly taken. you can look for help. Yeah. You can, you know, find support, the right treatment plan, uh, look at trauma informed mm-hmm. care, all of these, you know, things that are coming out now. And maybe we um, could just. Mm-hmm. It would in, be a good time just to say, we've talked a lot about child plasticity, but there is also, we have neuroplasticity throughout our whole life and it does become harder to change our brain, but with some very motivated um, tactics and um, dedicated practices, slowly over time, our brain will change. We're not doomed. So I think that's really important. Yeah. Like just like the dry Play-Doh, you know, you could like put it in a humidifier. Right. The, the right neurochemical. Like, uh, there you go. It's going to become squishy again. And, uh, more epinephrine. You can go back yeah. to Andrew Huberman's uh, early podcast that he has some really great explanations of adult plasticity. And if anyone's interested in neuroplasticity, mm. he really has a number of great mm-hmm. episodes on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the last question really paints a picture of, I think, what a lot of parents are going through right now. Um, they asked, you know, what are the effects of very frequent fights in front of my child? And and I know it's hard because that's just a part of the picture. We don't know what kind of fights they are, if they're very aggressive or violent, if there's more to it than that. Um, but I, I think this kind of shows that some parents are worrying about their child's environment right now. And, and that even within couples, it's not easy being in the same house very often, all day, every day, sometimes, you know, with some homes. Um, I, I I know that you, po- you 
probably can't answer because it's not specific enough and there's not a big environment, uh, like a big picture painted. But what can you say to parents who listened to this episode and now are questioning, okay, what is, is how many fights is it bad if I scream or what's neglect? What if my baby's crying and I have to go to the bathroom? What, what are, you know, maybe just to, to finalize that picture so that parents understand that what the environment should like, what it should and shouldn't look like, I guess. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, as you mentioned, like I'm not entirely qualified to answer this question. I, I very much, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. Um, it's not my background, but I think something important is to realize that like kids can understand things if you explain it to them properly. So, mm. um, you know, Bruce Perry, again, like the, the, all, the <laughs> greatest of all time here. Yeah. Um, you know, he explains that um, once even a child understands what childhood trauma has done to them, they have better outcomes. Mm. Once they understand, you know, okay, this is not my fault. This is, uh, doesn't have to be my future. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be negative for me in the future. Mm. Um, I think if you, you know, maybe, you know, if they're one or two years old, they won't understand, but you know, three, Mm -hmm. four, I think you can explain to them, like, listen, this is a pandemic, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, where, you know, your parents, like we're fighting a lot. Uh, it's been hard to live together. Like, like ask them how they feel about it. You know, does it, uh, does it bother you when we fight? What goes through your head when we fight? Um, well, this is what goes through my head. And then you can have Mm -hmm. your partner as well. Like, come in and say like, you know, this is what goes through my head and, you know, Mm -hmm. fighting is normal. Uh, There's a proper way to do it though, where you still love each other in the end, like, you know, explain to the child kind of what's going on so they can understand the healthy way to deal with these situations, even if it's after they happen, you know, like, so then the next time a fight happens, like, who knows, maybe your kid's going to come in and be a referee and say like, whoa, you told (laughs) me that this is supposed to happen. You know, like what, what's going on down? Yeah. Yeah. It, it comes down to, he, he, you know, Bruce Perry talks about like the predictable environment, the safe environment, and that's what we want to offer our children as much as we can. And there's a book by Dr. Daniel Siegel, and he talks about the four S's. I don't know if you've heard of that. And it kind of summarizes like early childhood research where he says if to ha- to help a child feel secure in their environment, they need to feel safe, they need to feel seen, and they need to feel soothed. So those are the, the four S's. And that's exactly with what you just described. We're helping them feel safe again if they did not feel safe during the fight. We're soothing them because perhaps their stress system is elevated, their their emotions are up. And we're, what was the other one? Safe, soothe, and seen. We're, we're, we're not ignoring the whole situation and pretending it didn't exactly, happen. Exactly, yeah. Super we, we important. See, we see your emotions. Yeah, so that's such good advice. And I think that it's something that we can do as parents. We can have heated moments um, but like you said, not just ignoring it, but addressing what it. What is the, that's with yeah, Tina that. uh, Payne Bryson, right? Is that she has, they both have some really yeah. great books. So I think we can link that the, the, um, the different resources. They're great. I will. Yeah. The book, the book yeah. I was describing is called the power of showing up. Um, and they really break down the research into something that's simple and applicable for, for parents. 
Um, they have a lot of other books. Um, I, I could put a couple links, but that one specifically ta- talks about like secure attachments and, and just breaks it down into, like I said, th- these four S's. So it's easy to remember as a parent, okay, in, in this environment, is my child feeling safe, seen and soothed? And if they're not, that could redirect you into a, you know, a certain direction to help your child feel those. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting about the soothing, like even through my, um, through my own journey through, <laughs> through therapy and through mental health, something I really learned is like, you are allowed to soothe yourself. Like you need yeah. to finish your, um, you know, your cycle of stress. You can't just push mm-hmm. it down and be like, okay, it's just time not to be tired, uh, not to be yeah. stressed. You know, you need to let yourself feel the stress, get through the stress and, and then move on. But you can't just be like, yeah. nope, now is not the time to feel sad. Now is not the time to feel overwhelmed. It is absolutely the time to feel it. Give yourself, you know, five mm-hmm. to 10 minutes, feel everything you need to feel and then get back to it. You know, it's it's important. You I, need to uh, soothe yourself as well, not just your baby. <laughs> it's so interesting that you brought that up. I've similar, I've had a similar <laughs> kind of journey with myself. You know, I was raised by a single mom and she did the best that she could. Um, and, but the soothing wasn't there because she was so busy, like keeping up the fort, you know, and, and I realized it, it's so interesting. Like I literally had, I, I've joined this, uh, online program platform called groups and it, it gives you, it's like therapy, but like a group of 10 people and it's led by a therapist and there's a discussion and I just, I leave, I start, you know, okay, happy. And then I leave crying, but I'm, I'm addressing so many things that I hadn't thought of. And one of the therapists there, she was like, you know, I followed, she knew me from, from Curious Neuron, which is kind of interesting. But she said, you soothe and nurture so many of us parents. And then I just broke down because I realized there was a link between not having it and overdoing it right now, like as an adult with everybody around me and forgetting to do it for myself as well. You know, like it's so it's when we therapy is so important, but I know that some can't. Um, but just taking the time to read through these books, even the book, What Happened to You, just allows you to, you know, pinpoint certain parts of your childhood and, and maybe address it and start working on it. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot of work. It's, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a lot of work there. Yeah. I know that, um, you know, there are self-help books, like mm-hmm. real ones though, from like, from like real psychiatrists, <laughs> real psychologists, um, where they kind of give you like step-by-step step-by-step workthroughs and exercises and things like that. So like, if you can't afford a therapist, you know, you can Mm. see if your local library has it. Um, If they don't have it, I know like my library, you can ask for them to like find a book and then they can like buy it and put it in the library kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, sometimes you can find free therapy online too. Like, you know, free trial of like a CBT app. A cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy app, yeah. you know, where you get a month for free. Like, even if you have to jump I around, one, yeah. yeah, even if you have mm. to jump around through app and app, like, I yeah. do think there's some at like some decent free resources out there. Yeah. Yeah. If you're willing to do the work, do you, are there, I, I have some of these workbooks as well um, for emotion regulation skills. And, and I think there's one on anxiety. What, um, are there any that you recommend? And if you can't think of them, I, I'll just add the, add the links uh, to the show notes. Mine are like self-esteem based, but I can, yeah, that's a- <laughs> I can let you know the one that I'm using right now. Okay. Yeah. But I, I love that. And you know, all of us parents, we struggle with that, that there's the confidence part too, that if we didn't work on that as as younger adults we're parents now and we kind of question everything so there's it's part of the struggles we have yeah. <laughs> um so we'll add all the links to to the show notes for sure um i think to close off our conversation I, i'm i'd love to hear from you in terms of with the research that you've done 
Um, there are two things I'd love to know. What would you, what changes would you like to see in our system? You know, um, when it comes to um, children or and adults now that are adults um, who have been abused, what's missing in our system to support them? Number one, and number two, for parents with the research specifically that you've done, you know, what would you like them to know? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's many, 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 many things I would change about um, specifically the Quebec healthcare system. Um, but just in general, I think um, a step forward, a, a way to move forward, what we would need to see is one trauma informed care, but yeah. in, in a way that's not just like giving a training and saying, okay, now we're trauma informed. Here we go. Like really like personalized care plans. Like, I think that's the the future mm-hmm. of all medicine, personal, personalized care. Um, but specifically in mental health, specifically in trauma, like it needs to be personalized. Not one experience is similar to another one. Even if you experience the same thing multiple times, it's, it's 99% positive. You're not experiencing the same way, whether like biologically or, or physiologically, like your, your responses change. Um, so one trauma informed care. Second thing, I think every child born in the world, but we'll, we'll start with Quebec or Montreal maybe, um, should be, you know, (laughs) just as we're given a family doctor, we should be given, um, a psychotherapist or, um, you know, maybe all family practitioners should have like special training in mental health so that, you know, just at your yearly checkup, you know, there's a little, Yes. A few questionnaires that get done or, you know, how, how are you doing? Do you think you need to talk to someone? What's going on? Just, you know, so it's there so that you don't have to ask for it because literally the hardest part is asking for help and like realizing like, okay, I need help. I need to talk to someone. So yeah, if, mm-hmm. if we can implement it in people's lives early enough and like, like free or, or, or part of our yes. healthcare system, like yeah. that's amazing. Right now, I think the biggest barrier to mental health treatment is the price and mm-hmm. the lack of specialists. Um, yes. yeah. So yeah, definitely. The waiting lists are huge it's crazy, right now. crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like, and psychotherapists are overworked. Like, like they have too many patients to see and too little time. You know, like mm-hmm. it's 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 just bonkers. Like, I I don't understand yeah. how this is not already implemented. Um, yeah. but you know, we're moving forward. <laughs> we, we will see what happens. Um, yeah. but yeah, those are the two things I would like to see change on a systemic level, mm-hmm. uh, on a personal level from parents, again, not sure that, that I can really comment on this. I don't have kids. I don't know how hard it is to be a parent. Um, but you know, I really think you just have to try your best. Um, mm-hmm. humans are humans. You make mistakes, you know, like, I personally don't think that one adverse event, you know, will be the end all be all for your child. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so I I really think it's try your best, look things Mm -hmm. up. Like already, if you're listening to this podcast, like I think you're doing a great job. Um, I literally (laughs) can't wait to stream every episode, like in the future when I start family, <laughs> like I'm already listening. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to forget all of this, but yeah, I'm literally so excited that resources like this exist, you know? Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, like find a community, um, for support. Mm. I think yeah, that's, that's such a good take home yeah. message. I know it's true. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Claudia, for chatting with us today, um, and discussing such an important topic with us. I'll be in touch with you so that we can add links to the show notes. Um, perfect. Marion, is there anything else? 
No, I just want to thank you so much, Claudia. I think it's been such a fun conversation. I love hearing all about your research. And I think everyone will love to hear about, you know, these nitty gritty details that are happening in the lab and how we're kind of translating them for the bigger picture. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks.